I uh, would invite you, if you haven't already, to turn to Titus chapter 3. We are looking at verses 3 to 8 today. If you don't have a Bible, there is likely a blue Bible located underneath the seat around you. And in that Bible, you can turn to page 998. He doesn't have to check. It's me. It's the receiver. It's just, yeah, decided to stop working. Um, Page 998 in that Bible will bring you to our text, I believe. I titled this message, The Truth We Must Never Forget in Our Dealings with the Unsaved. Thomas said it's a really long title. In fact, he almost couldn't fit it on front of the bulletin. We were going to draw an arrow to go around to the back. I guess I could have titled it, The Truth We Must Never Forget. I could have stopped there, but as you will see as we get, work our way through the text, I think you'll hopefully understand why I chose that. I'm not great with titles, but I do my best. By the way, I want to welcome the first through sixth graders. I'm glad you're in here with us. Gives our hard workers in children's ministry a little break. Happens four times a year. And so, but, but it's also a good chance for our younger folks to be in here with us. And they are great. They are fantastic. They are not a distraction at all. So um, I'm happy to have you guys in here. I don't know if you're happy to be in here, but I'm happy to have you in here. <laughs> so at the very beginning of chapter 3, at the very beginning of chapter 3, because now we're in verses 3 through 8, Paul gave instruction how, as to how Christians are to behave toward the unsaved people that they lived among and interacted with in their world or in the world. And as you rem- might remember, or you don't remember because you haven't been here, in the historical context, this is Crete. This is the island of Crete. It's filled with pagans for the most part, and... They are especially bad pagans, uh, morally so, is, is what we know from history. So these unsaved people um, might have been a li- even a little more challenging uh, to deal with and to interact with. And so Paul gives specific instructions. This is how you are to behave toward your neighbors, toward which would have been lost and unsaved people, pagans. And it has an evangelistic component. It was for the purposes of showing them the goodness of Christ and drawing them uh, to the gospel, or at least opening a door where the gospel could be preached to their neighbor. Two similar headings I found for chapter 3. Often Bibles will put a heading above the chapter to kind of give a basic description of what's included in that chapter. You'll find that in your Bibles. But two, two similar headings I found in two different Bibles were a Christian living among outsiders. That's just a heading for chapter 3. Christian living among outsiders. Another one has conduct toward those outside the church, okay, as a heading for chapter 3. Those are good headings. And outsiders, or those outside the church, as those headings have, uh, refers to the unbeliever, to the unbeliever, to the person who has not yet repented and trusted in Jesus Christ, and therefore not truly part of the body of Christ or the church. They are outside Christ. Now, there might be some outsiders sitting here. You're with us, you're sitting with us, but you are not yet part of the body of Christ because you have not yet put your faith and trust 
in our Lord and Savior. So you are effectively still an outsider, an outsider. But we want you to become an insider. We would invite you to consider that and to think seriously about that, to become part of the body of Christ. Now, concerning, and we covered verses 1 through 2 already, but concerning how believers are to behave, you Christian, how you are to behave toward your unsaved neighbor, Paul tells Titus in verse 2 to remind the Christians in Crete to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And we, we dealt with all of that already in previous messages. But Paul is not done speaking about the Christian's dealings with the unsaved. He's not done. He has more to say concerning this matter. And that is now where we pick it up in verse 3. And this section extends all the way down to verse 8 before we have another topic to look at or discussion. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the entire section so you get the flow and the context. But this is part one. We are only going to cover verse 3 today, okay? Which I know you're not surprised. All right. So if you would, follow along with me in God's Word. Beginning in verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes these words. For, and remember, this is coming right out of what he just said about that conduct and behavior toward the unsaved. And now he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So, verse 3. We'll jump right in, okay? Verse 3. Verse 3 describes the Christian's pre-salvation condition. Verse 3 describes the Christian's pre-salvation condition. That is, their life before Christ became their Lord and Savior, or their life 
as it was as an unsaved person. Okay? In the ESV, verse 3 begins like this, For we ourselves were once foolish. Another translation of the same passage in the New American Standard Bible includes this word also, which is actually there in the original text. The ESV just doesn't include it. But I like it a little bit better because I think it makes the passage a little more clear concerning what's being communicated. For we also, like your unsaved neighbors, for we also once were foolish ourselves. For we also once were foolish ourselves. And he'll go on to say more. The four, at the beginning of verse 3, connects verse 3 and what follows, what I just read, with the behavior just mentioned in the two previous verses that we've covered in the past couple of weeks. And that behavior concluded with the instruction, or those ethical instructions, included with the instruction to show, as I just mentioned, perfect or complete courtesy toward all people. Or as one scholar uh, rendered it, that section, to show courteous consideration to all people. And the all people, again, that Paul has in mind, based on the context, is those who are lost that we interact with and engage with in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our daily lives. Now, what might Paul be trying to get at or communicate in reminding Christians here and us here, Christians, those in Crete and us here living now, reminding Christians about what they were like before God saved them and doing that in connection with his instructions about their treatment, our treatment of those who are still unsaved, who are still lost, who are still enslaved to their sin. What might he be getting at? We'll come back to that. I want to conclude with that because I want you to leave here with those thoughts on your mind. But first, we're going to go ahead and just look at the seven vices listed here in verse 3 that typify or are characteristic of the unsaved, or those who do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, okay? And maybe that's you today. Maybe you do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We, we every Sunday, we are up here after the service. There's a number of gentlemen up here. I pray, we hope, we desire that that if you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, that you would come and talk to us about that, that you would find out what the Bible says about how a sinner can be saved, how they can be made right before God according to his word. I just want to keep emphasizing that. There's nothing more important than that. I hear people talk about the most important decision I ever made was the day I you know, got married. That is not the most important decision someone can ever make. It is not. The most Because imp- your marriage won't extend into eternity, but your soul will. And it will either end up 
separated from God in a place that the Bible calls hell, or it will end up with God and with Christ in His heaven and His eternal kingdom, His righteous kingdom. It's one or the other, and it's forever either way. And all those who have not been made right with God through faith in Christ and Him alone will be eternally separated from their Creator in the end. So there's no more important decision, beloved. No more. But let's look at these vices. Using the, the NASB, or how it says, for we also once were, I'll just continue to restate it that way because I think that's a better way to, to translate the passage. For we also once were foolish ourselves, Paul says. Notice he even includes himself, we, in this. So we Christians, we also once were foolish ourselves. Foolish. This is not speaking of a person's IQ or their intelligence, per se. But rather, it points to the fact that the unsaved person is without spiritual understanding. Without spiritual understanding. They may be really good at math. They may be scientists. They may be a rocket scientist. They may be brilliant in all kinds of ways. But the unsaved person does not have spiritual understanding. They, as one writer puts it, lack discernment of spiritual realities because of the darkening effect of sin on their minds. As Ephesians chapter 4 puts it, Paul, writing to the church there, says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And here he uses Gentiles as a reference to those who are still outsiders. They're still not part of the body of Christ. They remain pagan. You, Christian, must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. No longer. How do they walk? In the futility of their minds. He goes on to say, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. The Apostle Paul also says concerning this matter of spiritual understanding and the unsaved not having it, he says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person, that is, the unsaved, unregenerate person, the person who has not yet been born again, the person who has not yet been made new in Christ and does not possess the Holy Spirit. That person, Paul says, the natural person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly or foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That is, the things of the Spirit of God are foolishness. And there's a little bit of irony here. They are foolishness to the foolish. 
or those who lack the ability to discern spiritual things because their mind is darkened by sin. The foolish person doesn't rightly or fully understand nor embrace spiritual truth, spiritual realities, what is true concerning sin and salvation and God and man and heaven and hell. The unsaved person may have a high cue, beloved, or possess great brain power, but they are still foolish without Christ. And just, beloved, as we're thinking this through, it shouldn't be a matter of a put-down. It's more of pity should be our thought. Pity. Compassion. They are not able to think rightly. Their mind is darkened by their sin. God has not yet set them free. He has not removed the blinders from their eyes or unstopped their deaf ears. He has not yet given them a new heart and a new mind. They do not possess the Spirit of God. That is what you once were also. Until God stepped in sovereignly and rescued you from your foolish self. He goes on. And of course, this foolishness that every unsaved person is, or as it describes them, is characterized by, leads to all these other things, of course. For we also once were disobedient ourselves, Paul says. For we also once were disobedient ourselves. For we also once, being fools, darkening our understanding of spiritual things and walking in the futility of our minds, lived in and walked in disobedience to our Creator, our Maker, to our Almighty God and His righteous and perfect and good will for our lives. We too were once by nature disobedient to God's rightful rule and reign over us. We too once were. We too once were disobedient to Him. It characterized us. Foolish, disobedience. Paul goes on. The picture gets worse. For we also once were led astray ourselves. Led astray ourselves. Led astray is also translated deceived. Deceived in other Bibles. The Greek word there, it pictures false guides who lead others away from the right path and onto the wrong one. My brother who was reading the scripture this morning, and Paul's words for us to put on the armor of God, right? So that we could fight against who? The devil, the devil, the deceiver. 
In this fallen and corrupted world, the unsaved among us, beloved, who we once were, are continually being led astray from the path of truth by the various deceptions of Satan, of the devil, who is the great enemy of God, and all those who are made in his image, which is humanity. Who's the enemy? My unsaved neighbor? It is Satan. I'm not taking up armor against my unsaved neighbor. They're being led astray by the enemy, as I once was, until God rescued me, saved me, hunted me down, dragged me out of my mess. Second Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing. They're in the process of perishing. If they do not repent, they will be separated once and for all from God forever. In their case, Paul says, the God of this world, who is that? Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Who is blinding them? The God of this world, Satan. Foolish, disobedient, led astray. One writer says, we did not understand spiritual truth, thinking about us as Christians. We did not understand, understand spiritual truth at one time, and thus were led astray by Satan as well. We thought that we were wise to believe in evolution. That's just a strategy of the enemy to lead people away from the creator. We thought that we were sophisticated to throw off God's standards of moral purity. We thought that we could find happiness and fulfillment through the lust of the flesh or by accumulating material things. Materialism, hedonism, all ways of our world, ways of the devil move people off, away from the path of truth toward the path of destruction. We thought we could violate God's law without any harmful consequences, but we were deceived as well until God shed his mercy on us. He goes on to say, adding to this list, for we also once were slaves to various passions and pleasures ourselves. We were slaves to those things before God rescued us. Passions, that word 
describes a longing, and especially for what is forbidden, what God forbids. We too were slaves to our passions before God rescued us. Pleasures, various passions and pleasures, Paul says. Pleasures is from the Greek word hedone or hedoni, from which we derive the word hedonism. As one writer points out, that is the insatiable pursuit of self-satisfaction that so characterizes our modern society, hedonism. We too were slaves at one time of hedonism, or at least in our unsaved state, that's what would characterize us. The unsaved person, we learn in Romans 6, is enslaved to and continually corrupted by their sin. They're enslaved to it. They're in bondage to it. It's an evil, tyrannical king that rules over their heart. Sin is. That was true of us as well until, until God stepped in and rescued us from our enslavement and brought us under his rule and reign. He is a good master. Sin is an evil master. But he, sin was our master when we were unsaved. He goes on to say, for we also once, listen, we also once were passing our days in malice and envy ourselves. Passing our days. Another translation here is spending our life. <laughs> spending our life. The, the Greek word there includes the idea of a normal, typical manner of life. Paul is saying the unsaved person, the unregenerate person, their typical manner of life is malice and envy. Malice. Well, that's ill will toward others, basically. Ill will toward others, expressed in a variety of ways. We get really creative at this, but in ways to express malice. One pastor said malice, you know, it, malice stems from selfishness and wanting our own way even if it means harming someone to get it. So he goes on to say, if you have to lie about a rival to get him fired, well, that's life in the real world. It's a dog-eat-dog world, right? How else are you going to get ahead? If you have to cheat someone out of something to get what you want, well, it's too bad. But that's the business of the world. If you have to spread nasty rumors to make your enemy look bad, well, it's a dog-eat-dog world. That is malice. That is malice. Ill will towards others. We can't even, you know, think about it. So, again, remember, it doesn't mean that you couldn't be guilty of these things as a believer, because you are, right? You are. But look to see the distinction. This is what characterized them. This is what they were. There was no freedom from it. There was no escape. This is what a, a wicked, unregenerate heart continues to turn out. Malice, envy. This is what a, a one who is foolish and darkened in their understanding. 
produces malice. Disobedience. They're easily led astray. Not only malice, but envy, beloved. Envy. Passing our days in envy. Envy means a continual dissatisfaction with one's own position, possessions, or power as compared to that of another. John MacArthur says, The envious person cannot be satisfied with what he has and will always crave for more. He cannot abide any other person's having something that he himself does not have or having more of something than he himself has. You think about it, Christians, Christians, regenerated, given a new heart, given the Spirit of God, are commanded to rejoice with those who rejoice. Because they can. Because they're a new man. And they can find contentment in Christ. And they can celebrate the advancement of their brother or sister in whatever way that advancement is occurring or whatever benefit that is coming to them that may not be coming to you. They can rejoice with those who rejoice. But the envious person never truly can rejoice with those who rejoice. Oh, they may say, oh, I'm so glad. And in their heart, they're like, oh, why? Why not me? Why aren't things going that well for me? Why does everyone have more than me? Interesting, envy. That word is used in Mark 15.10, and there we read, for he, Pilate. Because, you know, sometimes envy is one of those things where, you know, we're going through a book called Respectable Sins, and I think it's one of those things where we're like, eh, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, doesn't everybody, aren't they all envious to one degree or another? Well, okay, probably to one degree or another, but it's, uh, it's a pretty big deal. It's terrible. It's wretched. It's, it's sin. And interestingly enough, in Mark 15, 10, it says, For he, Pilate, perceived that it was, remember, Jesus has been brought to him, and there's accusations being made by the religious leadership, Israel, the leaders of Israel, concerning this Jesus. And it says, For he, Pilate, perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. It was out of envy. Envy brought, in part, Christ to the cross. They were jealous over Jesus' popularity with the people. So they sought to have him killed. Finally, beloved, and I know this is a brutal, this is all, isn't this fun? Aren't you enjoying this fun time together? But um, here it is in the word of God. So we certainly need to hear it. Otherwise, God would not have included it. Finally, for we also once were hated by others and hating one another ourselves. For we also once were hated by others and hating one another ourselves. Now, you might think, because before I, you know, really looked into him, like, hated by others. You mean just like, oh, man, you haters. You know, like that, like we use that, like, why are you hating on me, 
right? You have no reason. You're just haters. Stop hating, okay? I want you to know that the, the, uh, the word here, translated hated by others, it is not the idea of being the innocent victim of the hate of others. That is not the idea. Hated by others, the word, only here in the New Testament, it denotes being odious, repulsive, and disgusting to others. It pictures the stage of degradation, quote, when vice becomes odious to the vicious. When your sin rises to the level that the vicious begin to hate, it, hate on you. Yeah, so... It's not like, oh, we, oh, it's not victim status. <laughs> yeah, I was hated. I was a bad guy. It's that. One writer says, the self-centeredness of our sinfulness ultimately results in our being hated. And then, in turn, hating one another. <laughs> right? So my self-centeredness, my selfishness, my sinfulness welcomes, invites hate from others, and then, of course, because of all that, I return the favor, and I hate them too. One writer says, it's not a pretty picture, but as always, such lists unerringly diagnose the human condition that is apart from Christ. Now, listen, as, that's it. That's the list. A horrible list, a horrible description. So is like Paul just exaggerating? Nope. He's not exaggerating. Someone, someone might insist, I, I can imagine this, and certainly uh, scholars have spoken to it, someone might insist that this doesn't describe them before they came to Christ or their pre-salvation condition. And I think about maybe the person who grew up in a Christian home and then at a very young age embraced Christ. That's certainly one example I could think of, okay? Remember the context. The gospel has come in brand new. There was no Christian generation after generation in the first century. The gospel was new, coming into pagan territory, unsaved people. So these are new believers coming into Christianity. So they had lives lived out in paganism, and therefore, for sure, these things they would identify right away. And I would imagine if you came to Christ at, a, at an older age, not as a child, I think if you're being honest, you, you could identify to one degree or another with all of these descriptions of what your life was like to one degree or another before Christ. Before Christ, yeah? One writer points out, just addressing that, it is true that not everyone displays all of these characteristics to the worst degree. So yeah, maybe you weren't, you know, the most hated and the most hateful and the most envious, practicing malice to the degree that you just, I mean, that's how people thought of you. Wow, that guy has ill will toward everyone. Not like that. Maybe not, but was it not true of you before you came to Christ? He goes on to say, maybe you had good upbringing where your parents taught you to be considerate to others and to practice Christian morality. So maybe there was some external constraints, okay, on your behavior, because that's what they are. External constraints, rules. Hey, don't act like that. Don't say that. But in your heart, what's going on? 
Perhaps your sin was restrained because of your circumstances, Christian. But if he goes on to say, if you know your own heart as God sees it, every one of these sins was lurking just below the surface. Give any sinner, unsafe sinner, enough time, they'll demonstrate in full the reality of all that Paul said. That's life as an unregenerate man or woman. That is life. And that's what you once were, he says to the Christians on Crete. Now the application. What, and this is the part that's I find very helpful to me and I hope will be helpful to you as I thought through these things and read more on this and that I want you to uh, stick, I want it to stick in your brain. What might Paul be trying to get at or communicate in reminding Christians about their condition before God truly saved them and doing that, as he did, in connection with his instructions about their treatment of the unsaved. And when we say unsaved, let's just, you know, make it a little more real. Not just someone you don't know. Think about the unsaved you know. In your family, in your workplace, living next to you. Why might he be saying these things? What's he getting at? He effectively... He could have left verse 3 out. He could have just gone right on into the wonder that salvation is, God showing us mercy, but he started right here, laying out the dark and ugly picture that is humanity without Christ. Why? Let's start with anger. Anger. One pastor says, why is verse 3 in our text? It is there because Paul knows that in order for us to act with love and good deeds toward unbelievers who, as a result of who they are, everything we just read, mistreat us, malign us, and falsely accuse us, in order for us to do that, in order us to show complete courtesy to all people, to be gentle, to speak evil of none of them, to show them love, we need to remember that we used to be just like they are. We're made of the same stuff. That's what he says. I like that. That was me before Christ. That was me. I was the same. Or I would have been the same. If in the right circumstances, I'd do the same thing. He goes on to say, we would still be acting like that if it were not for God's undeserved kindness and mercy that changed us. As Paul describes in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 3. He'll get to that. But first, the ugly picture. Which makes the mercy so much more understandable and beautiful and glorious and pride-destroying. 
anger. It'll help us not to become angry with our unsaved neighbors who do sinful things and hurt us and put us in a place where we can still do good things to them, love them, show them Christ. How about frustration? How about frustration? Here's another thing. So really, these are all our attitudes toward the unbelieving world. This is what Paul's getting at. He wants our attitude to be right toward them. And he knows that it may not be for these various reasons. Yeah, they're going to hurt you. But remember, you were once like them. You're made of the same stuff. If it were not for Christ, you'd be that. How about frustration? One writer says, the description in verse 3, Paul reminds us, is what we were all, or what we all were at one time. This realization must then temper our attitudes toward the unbelieving world. And then he says this, let us not expect from them what we were not ourselves before God saved us. Interesting, I received a, I just love all these things that happen while I'm preaching a message. Just stuff comes my way, and it's often related. And I know that's a work of God. And I got a, a parenting conference email from Paul Tripp. And I just thought in the, it just it's an advertisement uh, for, and we use this material for marriage, and we've done some parenting stuff of his, really good stuff. But the email says this, parents, you know, in bold, colon. Don't get mad. Because your children need parenting. Instead, treat them with mercy. Understand that they're lost and foolish. And trust the long-term process of what God is doing in them through you. I thought that is so perfect and relatable to even this don't get mad with your lost friends and family. Don't get frustrated because they're not, they're not living as you're living. Why would they? They're not loving as you're attempting to love. Why would they? How can they? They're rejecting your God. Of course they are. They're foolish. They're still trapped. The enemy is still deceiving them. One writer says, in order for us as believers to give a godly testimony in a pagan culture, and, and you know, this is it, guys. This is it. I was thinking about this. Maybe this verse doesn't have the impact that, it, that maybe 30 years ago, 40 years ago, where the culture itself was more Christian in one way or another. Even if it was just external, there was a commonality of a Christian culture. People living according to Christian ethic, even at least externally, right? So we'd be like, ah, everyone's nice, and they're kind, you know, and, and they're okay. They're not pushing back against my God, and they're not maligning me, and so on and so forth. But that wasn't the case in the first century, especially on the island of Crete. And I would suggest that is quickly not becoming the case right here in good old America, or at least in California, for sure. That's where I live, so that's what I can speak to. 
this will become more relevant to us. So he goes on to say, in order for us as believers to give a godly testimony in a pagan culture, which is what we are becoming if we are not already, we must remember that such is to be expected from the ungodly. (laughs) All of those things that were just described. In our former condition, we also once were foolish ourselves, just like the unbelievers among whom we now live and witness and by whom we are so agitated. Stop getting worked up. Do you think that's going to do any good? Not for you, not for them. Destroys your witness. They need rescue. They need rescue. They need the same rescue you got. They need the Spirit of God. They need their eyes open, their ears unstopped, and their hearts changed. They need God's mercy. They need salvation. That's what they need. And all you're going to get, the best you'll get without that, is some conformity to morality of some sort, external. But even so, that can only last so long, and it can only do so much. It might feel better, but it's not better for them because they're still lost. And in their heart, they're still fighting against God. And they still hate you. (laughs) But they push it down. Because they know that's not what they're supposed to do, right? Because that's what the culture has told them. But that's not what you want for people. You want, in fact, I would say, careful how I say, I would suggest that there is some benefit to letting all of the facade fall, the fake facade, the the morality, the external morality, let it fall. Because then we can, then we know, then it's going to be much more clear. Who are the outsiders and who need the salvation message and need our love and our grace extended to them as we preach to them Christ and show them Christ and who are not? For a long time, it's been a little confusing because everyone's acting like a Christian. You know, they would do the polls and they would say 80% of Americans say they're Christian. No, they're not. 80% are not. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even venture to say 20% are. I wouldn't even flip them. I, I don't know these things. I'm just talking now, but, but I would say it, it could be a good thing. At least in a, in a pagan culture, you knew they're out, right? They're the outsider. They need to hear about Christ, as opposed to everyone walking around claiming to be a Christian, acting nice, but inside they're still, their heart, they're foolish, they're disobedient, they're being led astray. So it might be good in that sense, for evangelism, but it'll be more difficult for us because we might be tempted to become angry or frustrated, but not if we think rightly about the matter. One writer, one pastor says, it is easy to become angry and impatient with unbelievers who act like selfish jerks. But if we want to behave as godly people towards them, which is what we're called to in verses 1 and 2, then we need to remember that before we met Christ, we acted in the same way that these people do. Unbelievers are living for themselves. That's all that they know how to do, and that's manifested in all sorts of ugly ways. Before we met Christ, we lived for self. That's what we did too. 
Keeping in mind how we used to be will enable us to treat ungodly people with grace and compassion. And that is exactly what we need to do and why I think this, this message is even more relevant now as our culture is changing around us so quickly. How about this? Here's another one, an attitude. Another reason this is important and would, and would fit with why Paul is doing this. How about being repulsed by their sin and then hating and then maybe even hating them in your heart? Because, you, you know, you're putting those things together because they are sinners and then they're sinning. And, and why do I say that? Well, listen, beloved, the saved person sees things differently now. They see things differently. When you are living in your sin, wallowing in your sin, enjoying your sin, embracing your sin as an unregenerate man or woman, living in your foolishness and in your disobedience and being led astray, living, passing your days in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another, when you were, when you were doing all that, as far as you were concerned, sin was good. Sin wasn't that bad. The only thing bad about sin is when you get caught or when you have to pay the price. Okay? But then God saves you. He makes you new. He opens your eyes to the sinfulness of sin, the wickedness of sin, the abomination that sin is. He opens your eyes to how much God hates sin and begins to place in your heart a hate for sin, which is good and which is right. But we much we we must watch our attitude toward those who are still enslaved to sin, not becoming disgusted with them or despising them, but rather again having compassion and pity for them. John says in MacArthur, blind to God's truth, God's standards, God's will, and all spiritual reality, unbelievers generate exactly the kind of world that is ours today. They can do nothing else. But although we despise the sins that characterize, motivate, and drive them, we must constantly keep in mind Paul's point in this verse. All of us, without exception, were ourselves once characterized, motivated, and driven by the same sins that are repulsive to us now. And that's a work of grace in our life, but that doesn't mean then you turn on the people that are still enslaved to that sin and begin to hate on them and condemn them. Their sin is condemnable, yes. Their sin is unrighteous, yes. But don't begin to put them down under you, writing them off. He goes on to say, that awareness should humble us and be a guard against hating those who are sinful and who need salvation through Jesus Christ, just as we did. He goes on to say, we must look at the unsaved as our Lord looked at them during his incarnation, and still looks at them now with grief and tears over their lostness. And a compassionate desire to see them repent and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. That's what it is to be Christ-like. I'm almost done. You kids are doing awesome. And the adults, not too bad as well. 
I would say also it's the attitude of self-righteousness. One pastor said the tendency for us as God works, he's revealing our sinfulness and he's working it out of us by his grace and through his spirit and by his word. And so we begin to walk in the righteousness of Christ, not in our own strength, but in his strength. We begin to manifest the fruit of the spirit that is beautiful and glorious We begin to hate more our own sin. Wonderful, oh, wonderful. But the tendency is to become Pharisaic and look down on those whose lifestyle is not like ours. Pride makes that our tendency, unfortunately. And listen, he says this. This is so good. There should be a moral difference. Yeah? Between the believer, the saved person, and the unbeliever, unsaved person, there should be a moral difference, yeah? That's clear. But the issue is not the moral difference. Rather, the cross is what made the difference. Do you get that? We want to focus on the difference. Well, of course there's a difference, and there should be. But the reason the difference exists, if it genuinely exists, the reason it exists is because of the cross and nothing else. Is it because you're better or you're more righteous? You are not. As Paul points out so clearly. You weren't. It is only because of the cross that that difference is being realized in your life. He goes on to say, Paul uses terms to stress the change. The for we two were once of verse three must be seen in light of, but when the kindness of God appeared. But for the grace work of God, we would still be in the same predicament as the unbelieving world. And here's one more, just one more. It's simple. It's our confidence when it comes to proclaiming the gospel to that sinner, to that unsaved person. And it is this idea that if we remember that we came from the same stuff, that we once too were all of that and maybe more, even if we weren't manifesting it to its fullest extent, that's what we were in our hearts in our minds, and yet we were saved by the power of the gospel. If we remember that, then we know that no sinner, no matter how bad they're appearing, is beyond the saving grace of God. No sinner is beyond the saving grace of God. And you watch people in their sin, and you, after a while, you might just start thinking, no way, man, not him, not her. What are you talking about? You once were also. You didn't save yourself. You were a total mess. And if it were not for the powerful grace and mercy of God, 
you'd still be in that mess. If God saved you, he can save him. One writer says this, only when we truly believe that apart from Christ, there is no more hope of heaven for us than there is for the worst sinner we meet. Can we minister the gospel to that one and others? He saved me. He can save you too. I was once like you. Repent and trust in him. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for all that it's teaching us. Father, help these thoughts to, to remain in our minds. That we might meditate on them and by them and by your word be changed into the people that you would have us to be. This is what we ask, Father, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.